Well, it was around the age of 10, and I, I remember this episode as a small uh, little Southern Baptist brat uh, growing up in the basement of our church in a Sunday school class. It, it was there that I realized what, what we kind of classically or in sort of a cliche way refer to the Sunday school answer. I realized one day in Sunday school as a, as a little child what it meant to say that Jesus literally is the answer to every Sunday school question you could possibly ask. You see, I was the little kid growing up who I would read on Saturday night the Sunday school quarterly. And it wasn't just so I would know more about God's Word or I would learn more about Jesus. I would read the lesson every Saturday night to make sure I got one of those little stars next to my name the next morning in Sunday school. And I would, you know, I probably wouldn't even pay much attention to what was there. I would just skim through it. I didn't want to lie, but, but I wanted to say every Sunday, I read the lesson. Give me my star. Put it up there. So every time all the other kids come in on Sunday, they can see my name and a star. Read the lesson. Read the Bible story. And yet one, one sun Saturday night, I remembered I... I, I forgot to read it and I was sitting in class and we were actually, I remember it very vividly. We were in the book of Acts and we were talking about Paul's missionary journeys and, and it dawned on me that I had not read and I had no clue what was going on. And so the teacher began to ask about Paul and Barnabas and they're being sent out on this missionary journey from the church in Antioch. And, and, and she started asking why were Paul and Barnabas sailing for Antioch? And you're in the class and everybody's quiet and I just said, Jesus. Figured that was a good answer to just any question in that moment and I said, Jesus. And I got a chuckle from my friends in the class and they thought that was funny. And then, then the teacher said, now why were they traveling? Why were they, what, what were they doing? Where were they going? And I just started saying Jesus over and over and the kids were laughing. Who were they, what, what were they doing? They were talking about Jesus who sent them uh, out of the church, Jesus. And I remember she got to one point and she looked at me and she said, you can't just keep saying Jesus. And then she laughed because she said, but you're not wrong. Like that, that, you know, that, that was smart on your part to just start saying Jesus. And, and, and I, I remember that moment and I remember her face being frustrated but humored in the same moment. And that, that's where we get that cliche of the Sunday school answer. And we like to say things like, life is just too complicated for Sunday school answers. And our questions in life, they're just too deep and they're so often confusing and they're too complicated for us to just tell everybody Jesus is the answer. That doesn't work. It's too, life is too difficult to just say that, to give a Sunday school answer. But it's not wrong, is it? 
Jesus ultimately is the answer to all of the questions. Jesus ultimately is the answer to all of the struggle, all of the difficulty. He is the one who will solve the problems and answer all of the questions. And that's what we see in this section of Scripture as Jesus himself, the answer, is put to the test. The, the, the most qualified religious teachers of the day, the ones who know the Scripture better than anyone else, they seek to put Jesus to the test. They seek to find out the answer, but they can't wrap their heads around the problem because they don't know the answer. Now, as we've made our way to this section of Scripture, we find Jesus in Jerusalem. He entered the city in what we call the triumphant entry. He comes into the city on a donkey, and there are thousands upon thousands, probably millions, who are hoarding around him, screaming and shouting at him, Hosanna, which means save us now, deliver us. And after the parade through the streets, the people just kind of go back to the festivities of Passover. But Jesus makes his way to the temple. He is intent here on picking a fight with the temple leaders. And we've seen he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers. He declares that this is to be a place where the poor and the Gentile are to have access to God. But you have made this place a mountain where people can't get to God. You've made the temple a barrier. And he begins to pick apart the teaching of the religious leaders. He begins to uncover their hypocrisy, and he begins to prove to them they don't know their Bibles. They don't know what they're talking about, and they are furious with him. And as the last time we looked at Mark, he tells a parable about them. He says, this place is like a vineyard, and you're like the workers in a vineyard and you hate the person who owns the vineyard and so every time he sends a messenger you beat them and kill them and eventually the owner of the vineyard is going to send his son and you're going to kill him and the religious leaders in the temple are intent on fulfilling that prophecy because they are seething mad at Jesus and why is that because they can't give the Sunday school answer the, the, the answer to the, their questions is Jesus, and he's standing before him, them, and they can't see it. And here we see a section where Mark describes in detail what that actually looks like as these leaders approach Jesus. Notice verse 13. And again, we're going to move through this rapidly. But verse 13 and they sent to him. Now, this is the Sanhedrin, the 71 leaders in the temple, kind of like a supreme court who ruled over the temple of the day. And they are furious with Jesus, and they send, notice, some Pharisees to Jesus. Remember the Pharisees, they're the religious sect that set themselves apart by their own traditions. They did not want to break the law of God. They loved the law of God. So to keep themselves from breaking God's commands, they came up with their own rules, except eventually their rules overwhelmed the very law of God and they held to their traditions first and foremost 
And so the Sanhedrin, they send some Pharisees. They also send Herodians. Now, these were Jews who took upon themselves Greek culture. They aligned themselves with Herod. They wanted Herod to be their king. And they made alliances with him. And so they hate Jesus. They've they've seen John the Baptist beheaded, and they oppose everything Jesus is about. And so the Sanhedrin send these two groups of people. Notice the text, to trap him in his talk. As he's walking about the temple teaching, as he is unpacking the scripture, they say, go listen to him. Go listen to him and catch him and prove to the people he has no idea what he's talking about. Find him in blasphemy. Find him in heresy. Find him opposing the the Roman government. Now, these two two groups of people, they, they didn't like each other. But now they have a common enemy who is Jesus that they are seeking to trap him. Notice verse 14. And they came to him saying, teacher, we know that you are true. We know that you are right and you don't care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances, outward appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, they are full of lies and they are dripping with flattery. This is not what they think about Jesus. This is plastic hypocrisy. And so they ask him a question to trap him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Yes or no? You tell us right now. Should we pay them or should we not? Now, the Pharisees despised paying taxes to Caesar because it meant to them almost worship of a foreign king. And the the, the denarius used to pay taxes would have an image of the Caesar on it. And they opposed graven images. That, that, That was unlawful. That was ungodly. And so they hated the idea of Caesar's money. And they hated the idea of paying taxes. But the Herodians, remember their political alliances, they were all in on it. They they wanted the Roman government to thrive. They wanted Caesar, specifically Herod, to thrive. This was their guy. This was this this was their mission. This was their and so if the Pharisees can get Jesus to say, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, the Herodians are going to be infuriated with him. It's just going to cause more drama. But if he says yes, the Pharisees are going to be infuriated with him. And so he's set up here. But notice Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, their fakeness, their plastic flattery. He said, why do you put me to the test? Almost joking. Guys, what's going on? Really? Seriously? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said, whose likeness, image, or inscription is this? Now, this coin would have been imprinted with Tiberius the Caesar. His image would have been on it. It would have been a day's wage. And he asked them, whose picture is this? Whose image is this? Whose stamp is this? And they said, Caesar. And he said to them, render to Caesar's things that are Caesar's. Now, his point is, If that coin is Caesar's, then just give it back to him. Who who cares? Just give him his coin back. If he made that coin and his image is on it, give it back. But then notice what he says. And to God, the things that are God's. Now, what is his point there? You have a little coin with Caesar's image on it. Give it back to him. Who cares? But here's a bigger issue for you. 
Give to God the things that are God. What are God's? Well, he created everything. And he created man in his image. As you talk about taxes and debate this issue, you have to realize that you owe God way more than a coin. You owe God your life. He has imprinted and stamped his image upon you. Your life is God. So before we can talk about taxes, we got to talk about what we owe God. And he just moves on. And they're, notice the text says they marvel at him. They're dumbstruck. He doesn't even come down on tax exemption. He gives us no tax. What are we supposed to do? They don't even know. Are we to give Caesar his money? You just said pay taxes. But then you said give God what is God. So everything is God. So does that mean we pay taxes? They have no idea what to think. And Jesus just moves on. Notice the text continues. Another group comes to him, the Sadducees. These were the wealthy Sanhedrin. They were a part of the Sanhedrin that oversaw the priestly functions of the temple. The Sadducees held to only the first five books of the Bible as their authority, the Torah. But a bigger issue with the Sadducees, notice they say there is no resurrection. And this is their sticking point with Jesus. He's walking around, talking about supernatural, talking about resurrection, and they, they want no part of it. And so they walk up and they ask him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote, now this is the Levitical law that they refer to here in verse 19. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves, his wa- leaves a wife but leaves no child, The man must take the widow and raise the offspring for his brother. So this is in the law. A man should take his brother's widow without kids and provide identity and legacy for her. But then they continue. Let us tell you a story. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, there were no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise... And the the, the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And so Jesus, verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For the, the seven had her as a wife. And so notice what they're doing. They're taking the Levitical law and say, Jesus, you know this. You know what the law requires. If our, brothers, if our brother dies, we're to take his wife and provide inheritance, identity, and a legacy for, for her. But what if that happens seven times, Jesus? You talk about this resurrection where we're all raised from the dead and we're living together for eternity. What if a woman shows up in heaven and she's got seven husbands? Who's she going to be married to, Jesus? Since, since you're, you, you, what, give us the detail. How's that going to work out in light of the law? And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? He says, this is the reason you don't know what you're talking about. This is the reason you sound like a bunch of morons. This is the reason you don't get it. Why? Because you know neither the scriptures. Now, that would have been insulting. You you don't even know the the books of the Bible you claim is your authority. You have no idea what you're talking about in the Word of God, nor the power of God, nor what God means when He talks about resurrection or supernatural. You can't even fathom that because you don't know the scriptures. 
Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, this doesn't refer to the bodily form we'll take. It refers to our status. And specifically here, I I believe he's referring to our marital status. In heaven, there will be one marriage. The, the, The bride of Christ will be married to Jesus, the groom, forever. And ultimately, Jesus is saying, is how all these other marriages work out, that's most important. And that's what the angels care about now. And that is their status before God now. Why are you trying to work all of these things out? You don't even understand the resurrection. Now, their problem is they're trying to discern the resurrection in light of the law. They're trying to see resurrection through the lens of the law. And that's that's why they can't figure things out. Because resurrection is the answer to all things. The law oversees sin for a time. It helps us harness sin for a time. Do, don't do this because we're sinners. Resurrection will fix sin forever. And so you have to think resurrection first and then that sorts everything else out. And one of the greater points here is if God can raise the dead, he'll sort out your marriage status in heaven. Now notice Jesus continues here, and this is, this is the point that he gets to with the Sadducees. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? And they would have all laughed. The book of Moses. That, that's, like, that's like saying, do you know the Lord's Prayer? You know, John 3, 6, of course we know the book of Moses. That's insulting that you would even bring that up. He says, well, if you know it so well, in the passage about the burning bush, you know how God spoke to him, spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He says to them, Moses, in the very scriptures, the first five books of the Bible that you hold to and you, you say is the only authority and the ultimate authority, there at the burning bush, God speaks of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as if they are still alive. He doesn't refer to them as dead and gone. He says they're still alive, so you don't even believe what you say you're teaching. The first five books of the Bible have resurrection all over them. He is not God of the dead, but of the living, and you are quite wrong. You don't know the Scriptures. The Scriptures point to supernatural. You don't believe in supernatural, so you you don't know the Scriptures. Verse 28. Then another group. And one of the scribes. These are the... Folks who interpreted the scriptures and formulated teaching and theology around the, the temple, they were the lawyers. They would bring the word of God and settle disputes or, or give them to the leader, the interpretations to the leaders to settle disputes. And so they hear, notice the text, they heard the disputing with one another. They, they see the chaos. They see the turmoil. They see the back and forth. And so they try to step in. They say, okay, Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, you can't do the job. Let us do the job. Let us get in here and let us find Jesus wrong. Let us find him guilty. Let us take care. We're the ones who know the scriptures. And so they asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? See, we know the scriptures. If you know the scriptures, you should be able to sum them up 
in one command. What is it? What is it above everything else that God requires? And Jesus said, most important, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with your whole being. And then verse 31, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus refers to the Shema, which means to hear. And this would have been Israel's pledge of allegiance. This would have been their John 3, 16, where you would walk up to them and say, what does God require of you? And they would just recite the Shema. The Lord is our God, and you should love him with your whole being, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. There is one God, and he requires one devotion to him. There is one Lord, and, and he is the Lord our God. He is committed to your good, therefore you must be committed to him. Your life must be narrowed down to this one relationship. God loves you, you love him, and it overflows in love for others. That's how you sum up the Bible. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You got it. You get the star. You have truly said that he is one. Now notice what he's after. He's one. And there is no other beside him. You have declared that Yahweh is the true God. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as oneself, this is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now the scribe says, above everything else that God requires of you, it is to love him with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. No other sacrifice, no other offering, no other thing you can do for him compares. It comes down to that relationship. And then verse 34, and Jesus saw that he answered wisely, and he said to him, notice, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, that's a burn. Because he would think, I know the Bible better than you. You, 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 little, you rabbi, you itinerant preacher, you walk around with these disciples, and you claim to know the scriptures. I've even heard you quote this. I've heard you say this. And Jesus says, well, you know it. So you're not far from the kingdom. And notice the response of everybody standing around. They were silent. No one dared to ask him any more questions. Why? What Jesus is saying to him and every other scribe and every other teacher that's questioned him is y'all seem to know the scriptures. Some of you don't know the scriptures. But even though you do know the scriptures, do you do it? Do you love God? Do you love your neighbor? Because just in just knowing it, you're not far from the kingdom, but you're still far from the kingdom because you don't do it. And everybody just backs off in silence. You're almost there in knowing, but you're not there yet. And so notice verse 35. And so we've had questions, questions about taxes, about marriage, questions about the law. And now we're going to get a question from the king. Verse 35. After all of this, and there were many more that would come to him and ask him questions, and he would just humiliate them and turn them away one after another. And Jesus stands up and says, okay, I'm going to ask you all a question. And as he's teaching in the temple, and this is symbolic, he is in the place where the, the presence of the Lord is to rest, and, and, and God is to feed his people here. And here you have the king feeding the people who are flocking to him to listen, and he's silencing all of her other words and authority in the temple. And he said to them, how can the scribes 
the teachers of the law, the lawyers say that the Christ is the son of David. Now, it is promised in the Old Testament, it was promised to David that one of his sons would have an eternal kingdom. And so there was always this hope in David's line. The Messiah would come from the line of David. The Messiah would be a son of David. The scribes teach that. It's actually biblical. But Jesus then asked a question. He says, but David himself, verse 36, in the Holy Spirit, riddle me this. He declared, the Lord, which is Yahweh, said to my Lord, which is master, ruler, or king, set at my right hand a place of authority until I put your enemies under your feet. Now here, he refers to Psalm 110 that we read in the beginning. And that was a psalm used when kings would come to power. And it it was actually a psalm that would declare, here comes a king from David's line, But when you read the psalm, you realize this is not the king. This is just a king. And we're looking for a king who will be a priest. We said in the order of Melchizedek, as we read it, a priest, a king who would come. There has to be one better. And Jesus is pointing that out here. And as we unpack the verse, notice he says, the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, ruler or king. So there's two lords here. There's two lords, and one is God, and one is God's king, and neither one of those lords is David. David is looking beyond himself to a better king, one that God makes a promise to. God himself and God's king, and God says to God's king, who is also David's king, sit in my right hand. I will put your enemies under your feet. And and this is a promise that never was fulfilled during David's time. David provided prosperity and security for his people. But all the enemies of God were not totally defeated. They continued to rage king after king after king. And so Israel is to look to one greater than David that David even pointed to. One that was in his line but also would be his Lord. And so Jesus asked the question, verse 37... David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? How does that work out? Y'all answer me that question, since y'all know so much about the Bible. You know so much about religion. How can David refer to one of his sons as his Lord? And as we look at the text, the tense of the verse is in the present. There was something within David by the power of the Holy Spirit that says there's got to be a better king than me. And that king has to be God's king and I'm not that king. How is that going to work out? Well, Mark's gospel is what tells us how that works out. Remember Mark 1.1? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here, Jesus himself is the only answer to that question. How could David's son also be David's Lord? Only if he is the son of God. 
the Savior King from God. And we've seen that unfold in Mark's Gospel. Remember, my Lord said to my Lord, and we see it at Jesus' baptism when the Spirit comes down upon Him and the Father. We talk about this a lot. It's so important. That moment is so important when God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What's going on there? Yahweh is saying to the Son of God, the Lord of David, you're my King. You are the Son the son of David, but also my son in whom I am well pleased. And by the Spirit, Jesus, the son, goes out and he begins to put the enemies of God under his feet. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. He calms winds and waves. Ultimately, he will die on the cross for sin and defeat the enemy of sin and raise from the dead and defeat the enemy of death. He will be raised from the dead. And where is he right now? He is at the Father's right hand while God is making all things new. Jesus is the answer to all of these questions. Jesus is the answer to that question. Jesus is David's king who is the son of God. And the demons knew it. When Jesus came on the scene, they said, are you the Holy One of Israel who has come to destroy us? Because we know Psalm 110. And you ain't just another David. It only works if Jesus is the answer to the question. But notice how the section ends. A great throng heard him gladly. And so we have moved from question after question after question, and there were many more, to finally the people of God are gathered around Jesus, and they want to hear more about this king that David looked to. And the picture that Mark paints for us is Jesus is the answer to taxes, to your allegiances, to marriage, to resurrection, to the law, to love. Jesus is the answer to all of the questions, and they can't trap him because he's the answer. And they can't get around the fact that he is the answer to the most essential questions of our existence. And that's one of the reasons why you feel trapped. And that's one of the reasons today you're still confused, is because you are trying to answer life's questions with something other than it's Jesus. It's Jesus. How complicated they may be, how difficult they may feel, if you're not getting to the answer who is Jesus, you will continually be trapped in your own thinking, your own wisdom, your own feeling, and you will never, you'll never answer your questions. Questions about who's going to be king in your life, and that's what the question of taxes was about. Jesus would come to you today and he would say, let me see the images in your pocket. Let me see the currency you have. Let me see the things on your phone. Let me see your bank account. Let me see the flags that you fly. Let me see the logos that your life rests up under. Let me see the mascots that you cheer. Let me see all of these images in your life. And let's just look at them. Are you making any of them king? Where do your allegiances lie? Is it with the government? Is it, is it with your job? Is it with your favorite sports team? Let's look at all the images that could possibly be idols in your life. If you don't understand that God created you in his image and Jesus has purchased you with his blood and he must be your king first and foremost, you will never put all of these other allegiances in their place. 
They will become idols and kings that will take over your life. And that's Jesus' point. I don't give a rip about Caesar. I don't, I don't care. I, I don't, it doesn't even bother me. Why? Because I'm king and I'm Lord of lords. And until you bow before me and you follow me, you'll never get that answer right. And you will be constantly miserable chasing hope in another king and another king and another king and another king. I created you in my image, Jesus would say, and I purchased you with my blood. Follow me. The question about what happens when you die. Every year, this question weighs down upon us even more. That question, what is going to happen when you breathe your last breath? What is going to happen when you in the distance, hear the beep on the monitor next to your head, and it is that long, constant sound. What is going to happen to you when you die? What is going to happen to you when you die? Don't avoid the question. Face it. It haunts you. It haunts me. What is going to happen? Well, the problem many of us have is the same problem the Sadducees had is we're trying to interpret eternity through this life. And we look at heaven through what I have now. And we can't figure it out. Some of us are here today and we're saying, how could, how could anything in heaven be better than this life? And you're thinking about this life. You're thinking about eternity through the lens of this life. And you say, I love my family. I love my job. I love all of the blessings. How could heaven be any better? Man, I hope the rapture doesn't, doesn't come before I get the promotion. That's the way some of us think. How could heaven be any better? And you're looking at eternity through this life. And you'll never believe heaven is better if you do that. But some of you are here today and you're saying, how could heaven fix the mess that I'm in? My life's a mess. Is there any hope? And you despair because you don't, you don't see anything better out there because you're looking at eternity through the lens of this life, and it's a mess. Well, the answer to that question is a resurrected corpse. If you truly believe that the body of Christ was dead, it was cold, rigor mortis began to set up in that body. There was nothing going on there, and all of a sudden the heart began to beat, the lungs began to take in air, brain waves started moving, and Jesus Christ walked out of a first century coffin, raised from the dead. If you can view your life through the lens of a former corpse, then you got the answer to everything, right? You, you get it. And you can live with hope and you can live with security. And then you know, even as we talk about the issue of marriage here, this, this one raised from the dead is going to usher us into a wonderful celebration. The, the marriage supper of the Lamb who will be united to His bride forever. And the greatest joys that you experience now, I promise you, will be infinitely better. Infinitely better. Begin to think about the infinite joy of heaven and view your life now through the lens of what Jesus is going to do for you forever. Your greatest satisfactions will be maximized in glory with Jesus. And some of you are thinking, okay, so does that mean, does that mean that my hurts, my struggle, my sin, those, those things are just going to vanish like they never existed? No. 
For eternity, you will be able to see how Jesus has redeemed every ounce of pain in your life, and that will make heaven glorious. Those things don't vanish. Because right now you're thinking, this difficulty doesn't mean anything. No, I go to heaven when I die. I'm not even going to worry about it. No, no. In heaven, you're going to look back at your story and say, look what God did. And the joy that I have now, and that's going to make heaven better. Heaven, stop thinking about heaven in light of this life. You'll never figure it out. The question, how do I get to heaven? We read this and we say sort of a generic, love God, love neighbor. Love God, love people. It's on my Duck Dynasty coffee mug. I get it. So I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be a good person. Sort of sums up what I'm, what I'm trying to be as a good human. But you know, you don't love God and you don't love your neighbor. If you're honest with yourself, your heart toward God grows cold often. And, and one of the greatest struggles of the Christian is seeing your sin more vividly and clearly as you get closer to the Holy Spirit and you get closer to Jesus and you go, whoa, I don't love God like I thought I did. I thought I was somebody with that star next to my name as a 10-year-old, and I'm not really. My heart is wicked, it's deceitful, and it lies to me quite often, and I don't love my neighbor. I'd rather, I'd rather spend time to myself. I'd rather make sure that I have what I need. I'm surely not gonna love my neighbor as myself the way I love myself. So Jesus must be the answer to that question. How do you get to heaven? Why should God allow you into heaven? That answer will be answered wrong unless you answer it with Jesus because Jesus is the one who loved God perfectly. He loved the Lord with all of his soul, with all of his might, with all of his strength. He never sinned, and yet he loved his neighbor, his enemy, better than himself by dying on the cross for his enemy's sin. Jesus is the love that gets you into heaven, and you will not go to heaven unless he is the answer. What does God require of you? There's one answer, Jesus. And the answer, what do you need? Some of you are in here today, and you're thinking about this year, and you're, what do I need? I need to fix it. I need help. I need more time. I need more money. I need better health. I need these things. You do realize that one time in David's life, he had everything he wanted, everything he needed. He was the one killing giants, the first anointed king of Israel, celebrated in the streets. I invite you soon to go and read the end of David's life because David's life ended cold and alone and a reminder that he was a failed king. God called him a king after his own heart, which is a king he chose, until he sinned grievously with Bathsheba. And from that point on, we see a spiraling down of David to the very end. And David right now is dead because David was a sinner who deserved to die. And his sin is billboarded over every other king in Israel from that point on. David was not the king David needed. He needed another king. And as good and as bad as your life is right now, you need another king. You can't be the king. You've got to look to David's Lord who said to his Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. 
And it is that sinless king who has made your greatest enemy, your sin, his footstool, who has defeated death and placed death under his feet and who is ruling and reigning right now. Who is the king you need? There is only one answer, and it is the Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus. 